Amen. Amen to that. I bet you're saying that at your home right now. Uh, let me add my greeting to that of what Michael gave earlier. W welcome to New Hope services that are being live streamed directly to your home. And Easter morning, what a great day to get together to celebrate. We're going to remember April 12, 2020 for a long, long time, aren't we, church? It's just a remarkable thing. If you're new to New Hope, I, I want to encourage you that you would be able to get free Bibles if you were here this morning, but you're not here. And so if you look at um, the side of your screen, you'll see a link for free Bibles this morning, and those are there for you. We will mail you a Bible if you hit that link, but you can also find that there's a free packet with information about New Hope on that link, and that includes a, a version of the Bible. It's called the, the Blue Letter Bible. Um, it's got multiple versions of it within it, and so I want to encourage you to hit that link on the side of your screen right now, and you'll get information about New Hope, but you'll also be signing up for a free Bible to be sent to you. would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. If you have a Bible, Bible right now in your hands, maybe you have one in your house already or it's in your lap, I'm going to encourage you to go to Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 16 as we look at the, the reason for the celebration, the reason for Easter, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection, but there's some other elements within there that we're going to be looking at this morning. Before we do any of that, though, I would just love to pray with you. Can we pray together? Father, we come before you on this most remarkable of days all around our planet. People are doing the same thing right now. They're praising the name of Jesus. And, and you said that your church would explode and there would be nothing that would hold it back and it would be explosive in its growth. And that is indeed the case. And we're just part of that body of Christ. But I thank you, Father, for those who are watching right now, for those who are dialed into this, that you would speak God, for every single one of us who are part of this service, th that you would illuminate our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and you would cause us to see again in a fresh, new way what you did for us. And I pray for that in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. I'm gonna give you a passage to chew on before we get to Mark 14 and Mark 16. And I'm gonna put it up on your screen right now. If you're watching at home, you can see this on the bottom of your screen. It's from Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12, 2 reads this way. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's one of my favorite verses. I wonder, though, if you've ever taken a minute to stop and think about what despising the shame involved with the events of Easter. What does it mean for him to despise the shame there? Well, the betrayal, the, the disloyalty that Jesus experienced at the hands of his closest friends, they played deeply and played a unique role in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. And today what I want to do is I want to help you to see the events of Easter through a lens that perhaps you have never considered before, that you would look at this in a fresh new way. So I want you to look at that verse one more time. It's going to come up on the screen for you again. Hebrews 12.2. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you know that that's an Easter verse, church? That, that speaks of both the resurrection and the crucifixion in one breath. In one sentence, you get the description of everything that Jesus went through in Hebrews 12 too. Watch this, on one side, you have the cross. And on the other side, you have the evidence of the resurrection. 
See, he wouldn't be able to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God unless he had endured, unless he had conquered. He wouldn't have a throne unless there's a conquering, unless there's a resurrection. But here's what I want you to notice. Wedged in between, right in between the crucifixion and the resurrection is the shame that he endured. And I'm wondering if you've ever taken time to consider what's involved in that shame in Hebrews 12.2. According to this, a shame to be despised. We're going to come back to that because that's our anchor verse for this morning. On Friday, things could not have been darker. Even the sun is blackened out. And it's noon, it's high day, but the sun is blackened out according to Scripture because of what Acts 2.23 says. Look with me at this. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. Aren't you glad, church, that the story doesn't end there? Aren't you glad that it doesn't end with verse 23? Because that was Friday, and you know what's coming. Sunday's coming, right? What we're celebrating this morning. Sunday morning's coming. And so we have verse 24. I'm glad it doesn't end with verse 23. Here's verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Of all the but gods in the Bible, that one's the biggest. Of all the but God, because there's a lot of them, there's like 1,300 but gods in the Bible. But of all of them, this is the biggest one right here. But God raised him up again. As with any generation, like the generation that we live in right now, we get constant news feeds of what's going on around our country what's going on around the world, as with any generation, news travels really, really fast, but especially through the streets of Jerusalem on Easter morning. And the reason I would say that is because on Easter morning, it was also Passover, and Jerusalem is filled with not just thousands, not just tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people. And among those hundreds of thousands, they'd already knew about the arrest, they knew about the trial, and they knew about the crucifixion. But now on Sunday morning, it's three days after his execution, and they begin hearing wild rumors in the streets. They begin hearing about the possibility of a resurrection. They knew about the crucifixion, but a resurrection? What are these rumors? What are these things seeing? So the government had to issue an official edict saying, the followers of Jesus, they stole his body. That's what they had to put out publicly because they had to get control of this. In the midst of all the commotion, we gain a special insight. And it comes from Mark. You've got your Bibles open to Mark. Where it will be in chapter 16 first. Look with me at verse 7. You see just this little phrase, an angel speaking, but go tell his disciples and Peter, let me just track with you where this is coming from. You've got an angel conversation taking place. You have an empty tomb, and in the empty tomb, there's nothing but linen. And when the angel appears, the angel comes and says directly to the individuals who showed up at the tomb, go and tell his disciples and Peter. 
What's going on here? Well, the news is relayed quickly. It's relayed very directly, specifically to Peter. And now Peter has to see it for himself. So we have Luke 24, 12. Luke gives us some insight. Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings by themselves. And so we've got empty white linens that are laying by themselves and they're screaming to Peter. He's alive! And Peter doesn't know what to do with this. He doesn't know what to do with what he's looking at. Look with me again at Mark 16, 7. Why are we seeing the angel communicate it this way? But go, tell his disciples, and Peter... Now, we've already got Peter at the tomb. Why do we have these two different sources of conversation going on? One is when Peter showed up later to look and see for himself that there actually was a resurrection. But earlier in the morning when the women showed up, the angel said, go, tell Peter what has happened here. But why in the world is Peter singled out by the angel? Isn't he one of the disciples? Go and tell Peter and the the disciples and Peter. Well, if you're not familiar with this story, there's a back story to this. Something has happened in Peter's life. There's a brokenness that's occurred. I want you to recall with me the conversation that had taken place on Thursday. So just back up four days in time, and Jesus is at the Last Supper. Look with me on the screen, and this is Mark 14. This is where Mark plays into it in chapter 14. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Skip over to verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. I suspect that God is looking Peter directly in the eye. It's just my perspective on this, but I'll tell you why I have that perspective. And I think it's a piercing gaze in that moment. Here's what we understand about the background of this story. Tradition tells us that the book of Mark not only was written by Mark, but likely it was dictated to Mark by Peter. If Peter's the one who specifically is relaying this information to Mark and Mark is acting as a scribe and he's writing these things down, it's very likely that when he dictated these things, I suspect Peter is also relaying the emotion that's contained in this sentence because I want you to see Peter's response in verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. If you know the story, you understand the stage has just been set for unfaithfulness, for treachery, for betrayal. Because in that room at that time are the 12, and Jesus says, All of you will fall away. And all of them said they would not fall away. They were all saying the same thing also, it says there. Most of us think of unfaithfulness to Jesus when we think of Judas. 
we immediately have him pop in our mind. And here at New Hope, when we prepare for communion, when we get ready for communion, we always read the exact same passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You, you even see it pop up on your screen right now. And it simply says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you in the night that Jesus was betrayed. He broke bread. See, even the writers 40 years later were thinking of the betrayal. And it's logical that when we think of unfaithfulness to Jesus, we would think of Betrayal, but betrayal, when he was betrayed, that's periodidomai. It's not even in the screen this morning. It's just in your notes, and you might want to look at it, but that actually means to surrender someone over, to physically turn them over. What's being communicated by Jesus here when he says, you're going to deny me? It's different than turning him over. It's a different form of unfaithfulness, and it occurs on two levels here in what Jesus is communicating. Stay with me on this. Watch this. To the larger group, to the, to the 12, and whoever else might have been in the upper room, to the large group of disciples, watch this. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. The word that might be used in the translation you have is stumble. You will all stumble on behalf of me. That's one level of failing God. You see that word in your notes this morning? That's scandalizo. It's where we get the word scandal or scandalize in modern English language. Scandalizo means to entrap or trip up or to be enticed into sin. Now, sin is sin, no matter on what level it occurs, but it's even more severe when Jesus speaks to Peter because he says to Peter in verse 30, but you, Peter... It's not just a stumbling on your part, Peter. You will, verse 30, you yourself, Peter, will deny me. Eponeromai. That's the other word that's in your notes this morning, and you see it on the screen right now. And unfortunately, it, it means to utterly disown to the degree of actually disdaining So Jesus is speaking so frankly to Peter, he's saying it like this, you, Peter, you will utterly reject any relationship with me whatsoever. I'm sure what's going through Peter's mind at that point is, bail on God, I I would never do that. Walk away from you. Keep going with Mark's account. It's the reason I asked you to go to Mark 14 and Mark 16. We're gonna stay there. Go with me now into verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. And in in, in any other situation, that'd be kind of a cool image, sitting in a courtyard, warming yourself at the fire. It's cool in the evening. There's a nice glow. There's a lot of brickwork around And then you find in verses 53 to 66, there's something else that's going on. There's a lot of accusing going on in the background. We're not going to go into that right now, but there's all these accusations that are being hurled against Jesus inside the high priest's house. But fast forward with me. Peter's still in the courtyard, and verse 66 says, one of the servants in the courtyard sees Peter, and he says this in verse 67, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene, but he denied it, a perinomai. It's the first stage 
of the disloyalty. It's, it's the lie. And go with me to verse 69. They began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And then verse 70. Again, saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. There's anger and there's embarrassment and there's fear because he's frightened. He obviously feels trapped and he's completely desperate to hide any relationship whatsoever with Jesus. Just a moment ago, you saw the first two levels that Jesus was speaking about in unfaithfulness. You saw him refer to the different levels of denying, but this one is completely different. There's something else going on here because this word okios is used here. I do not okios this man. You see that particular word come up on your notes and it means to domesticate and adherent to the degree that he treats him like he's part of his own house, those of your own household, so you're like your spouse relationship, like your relationship with your child. And Peter's saying, I have no relationship. He is not part of my household. And immediately what Jesus predicted comes true. Look with me at verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, Peter. And he began to weep. When you hear the word weep in the English language, it causes you to think, oh, it's just, it's such, it, it sounds so gentle. It's, his heart is sad. You'd be totally missing it if that's what you think. Matthew says there's a violent sobbing on Peter's part. Actually, the word that's used here is clio. The word actually represents to wail out loud. You ever cried like that before? What triggers that kind of raw emotion? Here's what has triggered it in my life. Death, separation. You know that something's happened that has broken the ability to connect with a person. Now, mind you, Peter's strong. He made his living at the sea. And now you find him wailing publicly? Like there's some serious trauma going on here. I'm wondering this morning, can you identify with that kind of trauma? Have you ever failed God to the degree that you recognize there's a breach in the relationship? There's a brokenness and you don't know how to fix it. You're not sure what to do with it and that's exactly what's going on with Peter here. Have you failed in your relationship with God? Well, the truth is we all have, and this will be a bit prickly for you if you're new to church, but I want you to see this. Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anytime that we find ourselves in a behavior that goes against God, 
that goes against God's standards, we fail. Let's call it for what it is, we sin. We're all Peter to some degree. We've all failed God. We've all been unfaithful when we go against God. And maybe for you this morning, you're wondering if your brokenness is even repairable. Is there even a chance that this can be fixed? What I've broken, can that be restored? Dr. Luke now compounds the pain of Peter's ordeal with another detail, Luke twenty-two sixty. It says this, immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Mind you, Peter is transfixed at this moment. He's experiencing the most emotional crushing he has ever known in his life. He's never gone through this kind of trauma before. It's so severe that when Jesus turns to look at him, according to what we're seeing in here, and the eye contact is made, when he recognizes what he has done, it crushes him. What's in this look? It's like a spear piercing his soul. Because when he looks at Jesus, he sees Jesus chained and he's bleeding. His face is swollen. He's covered with bruises and spit. Honestly, church, I would tell you that if I could keep an image in my mind all the time when sin creeps in, it would be that image. I actually keep an image of Jesus on trial on my computer screen. I need to be reminded of what he went through for us. This is not artwork for Peter, though. This is Peter living it, and it's more than he can endure. He's actually there in verse 61 in Luke 22. It says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In verse 62, it says, and he went out, and he wept bitterly. That's what Matthew was talking about. That's the wailing out loud. That's the sob. Mark just said he weeped. But Luke's got it right. Not that Mark had it wrong. They all use the same word. It's Clio. He wept bitterly. Here's what Peter has realized. Maybe you've come to this place yourself in your life. Peter's realized he's fallen short of the glory of God. He's fallen short of God. In the darkest hour... He doesn't measure up. He doesn't measure up, and he fails God. But now we find ourselves in the aftermath. We find ourselves, from the point of view of 2020, looking back on history, and we look at this first Easter morning, and we see this exact same Peter is now staring at empty linen wrappings from the outside of a tomb, and in a flash... He recalls exactly what Jesus said about the resurrection and the reality of seeing these empty white linens on a slab is the ultimate reminder of his failure. Three nights earlier, he was so concerned about his character, so proud, so confident, so sure. I tell you, Jesus, everyone else will fall away but not me. 
I would never do that. These other ones, they're second rate, but not me. I won't fail you. I'm the truest of the true. I don't care where you're at right now in your home or in your car, maybe you even are working right now and you're watching this on your phone. Say amen if you agree with this. Sin will humble you. It will. Sin will humble you. Peter's so concerned about his character. And now he stands outside the tomb looking inside and he realizes the magnitude of turning his back on God. There's a reason that John Newton not only wrote Amazing Grace, but included this phrase, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, Amazing Grace that saves a wretch like me. See, sin will humble you. I'm wondering if you know a sense of personal failure in your life. Do you have a realization? Have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever lost control of your tongue? I know most of us would say amen to that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Does your tongue get you in trouble? More times than you can count? Do you have a temper that dominates? Well, then you can identify with Peter. Do you have a temper that dominates you when you least expect it? You could say, I'm Peter. I'm just like him. I've done these exact same things. So Peter stands at the entrance of the tomb trying to get his mind wrapped around what he's looking at. And obviously, there's going to be confusion at this point. My, my Lord was wrapped in linens. I know he was. I saw it. And then they put him in this tomb, but the tomb is empty except for the silent witness of these linens. What does this mean? It's human nature to be oblivious to the things that can take us down. For Peter, it's pride. Even if all fall away, I will not fall away. And what's the very thing that Satan draws his arrow at and releases at Peter? His pride. See, it's, it's obvious that we can be oblivious to the sin that will take us down. For Peter, it, it's his pride. It's the very thing Satan aims at. Aren't you grateful for grace this morning? Because it's in grace that Jesus endured the cross. For people like us who identify with Peter, for proud, calculated, foolish, good sinful people. Even though he knew we would fail him, he's not ashamed to go to the cross. Go back to Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I've asked you if you've ever considered the type of shame that might be re represented here. There, there's three types of shame in my understanding as I study this passage. What kind of shame might be the first one? The first one would be the kind of shame that goes with the nakedness. Physically naked, stripped before the people. Even though artwork portrays him with a towel on, he's naked. That's the way Rome crucified people. 
He's not only naked, he's been spit on, he's been beat. So there's, there's the physical shame that goes with being on the cross. Verse 2 says, he despised the shame. Now, if you and I, if we scorn something, if, if we despise something, normally you don't want anything to do with it. If something's so repulsive, you'd say, I, I don't want that, and you would run from it. So you and I, we probably would want to run from the cross. We wouldn't want anything to do with it. Well, here, the despising and the scorning means this. Jesus sees the shame involved. He knows what the shame is going to entail. But according to a biblical interpretation, it's so minor in contrast to something else. He did not bother to avoid it. He endured it. He didn't run the opposite direction He endured it. Why? Because of the focus. Because of the subject matter. Because of the joy that it would bring. He looked beyond the cross. It's not that there wasn't shame. There's shame in magnitude here. But that which was on the other side is so much greater. Jesus looked down on the shame Now, I asked you what what kind of shame there was there, and I said there were three. The first one would be the shame of the nakedness, the physical shame. The second would be this, the, the shame that would come from even his own abandoning him, the truest of the true, his closest friends, who would say, I don't know the man, I don't want anything to do with him, man, I have no relationship with him, because the cross was that. Horrible, but here's the third one. And I'm convinced this is the greatest shame. And I tell you, beloved, it's the shame that you and I know all too well. It's the shame of sin. It's the shame of our sin. And the Bible portrays Jesus as being covered in it. He bore the sin and the weight of the entire planet from Adam and Eve to the very last person that will be born on this planet. He bore the weight of that sin, my sin, your sin, our shame. And in spite of all of our weakness and all of our disloyalty and all of our failure and all of our denials and even betrayal, Jesus sees all that shame as so minor, he didn't avoid it, he endured it because of joy. Because of the joy, because of the great love. For the Father to be sure, but love for you. Because scripture says this, John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the whole world. So it's love for the Father to be sure, but it's love for you as well. It's love for every one of us. That's why he despised the shame and he looked forward to the joy in spite of all of our weakness. Now to end this, I want to circle back with you to put these pieces together. Circle back and I want you to see amazing grace in the resurrection story. See, because before Peter even knew he had a need, God already was exposing grace Come back with me to Mark 16, 7. Look with me at a more fuller context of it now. But go, remember the angel conversation? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. 
There you will see him just as he told you. Let me hit the pause button for just a minute. The single greatest gift that God could give humanity is forgiveness of our sin because we all have it. The single greatest gift he could give us is forgiveness of our sin. Because without forgiveness of our sin, there's no reconciliation. Without reconciliation, there's no restoration. And without being restored to God, there is no hope of heaven. So if you don't have that, if you don't have that greatest gift, there's no hope of being restored if you don't have the forgiveness of your sin. Throughout the ages, Peter's failure has been viewed as enormous, and it was. I won't try and sugarcoat it. Peter wouldn't try and defend it himself. I'm so glad that it wasn't left out of the crucifixion and the resurrection story. And if Peter dictated the book of Mark, he actually is telling on himself why. Because if Peter's failure is enormous, the grace of God is enormouser. And I know that's not a word, but just give me some slack on that. Give me some grace. My, my sin is great, but his grace is greater. See, this story actually tells of a victory. How can I say that? Well, because Jesus already knew they were going to fail. Before the fail, I want you to look at verse 7 really, really closely as you have your Bible open in Luke, Mark 16. It's telling you of victory there. See, it's past tense. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. See, Jesus is making plans to see Peter again even before the failure. He's God even though Peter is dripping in failure, even though you might be dripping in failure this morning, even though you might be covered in sin, Jesus has made plans to see you again if you will receive it. If you will receive what he's offering you, he's made plans to see you again in the exact same way he made plans to see Peter again. So go tell his disciples and Peter He's going to the place where he agreed to meet you after the resurrection. See, Peter's story is our story. We've all sinned and we all fall short. Going forward, I've privately wondered this week, how many times Peter might have heard a rooster crow in the morning? Every day of his life, from this point forward, and every day of his life when he hears that rooster crow in the morning after the resurrection of Jesus, is he reliving over and over and over exactly what he did and what had happened here? Your worst sin might replay over and over and over in your mind, but I promise you the Lord Jesus Christ is there to restore you before you ever even knew you had a need, he makes plans to see you again. And the remarkable thing is you don't have to work for it. You don't have to work for the restoration. And from the dawn of history, mankind has struggled to be worthy to stand before God. We do this instinctively because we know we're not worthy. So we think we want to earn it. We've got to work for it. We think we're not good enough. Most people think they have too much failure that they're not good enough. And if that's you this morning, I, I want you to know this. If you think that you're not good enough, you're right. 
you're not. But praise God, Jesus is. Jesus is good enough. Jesus is good enough to make you clean to stand before God. So you're not, but Jesus is. The truth is that's the starting point. That's actually the place of beginning. If you come to that place of realization, I'm not good enough, that's the beginning place. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You wonder what the work of the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit brings conviction. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. And if you've got a sense that you don't measure up, I want you to know this morning that you can begin again. You can be seen by God as completely restored, as forgiven. In other words, righteous, because Jesus will make you righteous. So I'm here to ask you this morning, do you need to be restored to God? Do you want to move from brokenness to restoration? Know this first of all. With every natural fiber of our being, with the complete makeup of who we are, we want to earn God's salvation. But it's not earned, and that might be new information to you if you were raised in a tradition in which you were told, if you just do enough of the right things, maybe God will let you in one day. If you just give away enough money, if you just help enough people, hear this. Scripture says in Ephesians 2.9, grace is the gift of God. You see that on your screen right now. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. It's given to you. It's not the result of works. And that way you can't boast. See, it has absolutely nothing to do with your capacity It has nothing to do with your religious activity. Salvation doesn't come by communion. It doesn't come by church membership. It doesn't come by baptism. And it certainly doesn't come by works. It comes through the grace of Jesus, what he did on the cross. He completely paid for your sin if you would receive it. So it only comes to you when you surrender to Jesus and you admit that you failed So I'm I'm asking you this morning to respond to the things that you're hearing, and there's some things that you need to do. You're in the privacy of your own home right now. There couldn't be a safer place on planet Earth for you to deal with this issue. You can do it right now. You can do it after this live stream is over. Michael's going to come back and, and lead us in another worship song in just a moment. But between now and that moment or after the worship song, You can tell Jesus that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And I promise you, he will not be surprised. He already knows that about you. Following that up, confess your need for a savior to him. Confess your need for forgiveness. Just say to him right now, I need you, Jesus. I need you. You can start over again. Everybody can because there is a new beginning in Jesus. I say that on the authority of scripture. Look with me at this verse from Romans 8.1. I love this verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means for you? It means that your standing is not based on your feelings. It's not based on your emotion. It's based on what God declares about you and what he says about you is always true. What God says about you is that you're not condemned if you're in Jesus. Look at that verse closely. Write it down if you've never written it down before. Romans 8.1. Your salvation is not based in your feelings. It's based on who God says that you are. And in grace, he forgives all of your sins. Hear this. Your past, your present, and your future sin. 
he wipes it all out. Here's how we're gonna land this plane. Three years earlier, when Jesus is walking down the shoreline of a beach and he sees Peter and his brother fishing, and there's a moment as you read scripture, it says that Jesus is calling to Peter, inviting him to be part of his team. In that moment, Jesus knew what Peter was gonna do. God could have left Peter standing on that shore. He didn't have to have that first conversation. It could have gone down like this, no way, that guy's getting on my team. I'm just gonna leave him right where he's that. Instead, God initiates the relationship, just like he's doing with you this morning. God reaches out to you, even though he knows you will fail, and you failed in the past, he looks forward to the joy of presenting you to the Father. The joy of presenting Peter to the Father. That's why he endured the cross. That was the joy set before him. So if you wonder what the resurrection means for you this morning, it means the same thing for you that it meant for Peter. Because of Jesus, you can have complete forgiveness of your sin. And therefore, I'm here to tell you this morning, you can have restoration to God. Your soul can be made clean and you can stand before the God of this world, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, completely restored because of Jesus. The resurrection is the proof. It's the proof that God accepted Jesus' death as payment for your sins if you believe, but you must believe in Jesus. You must believe in him as your savior and make him Lord of your life. So even though the events of this first Easter weekend involved betrayal and brokenness and utter failure, even on the part of the people who were closest to Jesus, it did not end in destroyed and broken relationships, but it ended in restoration. I'm inviting you back next week when we're going to pick up this story right at that point where Jesus goes out to see the disciples in that place where he said, I'm going to go meet you, but you have to come back for that. Right now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you if you prayed to receive Jesus, if you want to pray to receive Jesus, if you want someone to pray with you, you see on your screen right now a link, a link that will take you to a New Hope site. And if you click on that and fill out the information that's there, just put in restore, put in the information that you want to have someone reach out to you. One of our staff will do that. The pastors and the directors of the church are, are waiting to make connection with you. So you can do that through Facebook or you can do that through YouTube. You can do that for the various platforms that we've opened up and allow you through our website to connect with us. And especially if you want a packet that will help you walk through what you need to do next. What do I do with this? or if you want to be sure of your salvation. Please do that, please follow up. If nothing else, just let us know where you're watching from this morning. We'd love to hear from you. Before we transition to this last worship song, I'm gonna pray with you right now and I'm gonna pray that God will seal these things in your heart. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every soul who has been touched by this story this morning. Whether it's someone who's part of New Hope Church or someone who's watching for the first time or 
wherever the story is being told all over this planet, wherever Jesus is being magnified and glorified, do what you do, Father, and bring people into the kingdom. God, we do ask that you would spare us from damage from this virus. We, we ask that you would heal our nation, that you would heal the nations around this planet, that you would bring physical healing to people and restore them. But greater than that, Father, is the healing of our soul to gain the whole world, to have our physical health back and not have a relationship with you, it amounts to nothing. So Father, we need that. So we start there and we ask that you would seal deeply in our heart the truth, the reality of what we have just seen in this passage that you will restore because you've made plans to see us again if we will believe and receive the restoration. God, I ask for that. I ask for that on behalf of the people who have dialed in this morning. Cleanse souls, Father, and bring them into the kingdom. I pray for that in the matchless name of our mighty King who's coming again one day, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.